Here we go. This is I'm excited. I'm a, I'm a little nervous because this is a really popular, well-reviewed movie. So <laughs> we'll do our best. That was the amazing opening music to North by Northwest, composed by Bernard Herrmann, who did an amazing job uh, with the scoring of this film. And I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm coming to you from sunny North Bend. And this is Bob Johnson uh, coming to you from Los Angeles, where we're having rain and Seattle-type weather, welcoming everybody back to Classic Movie Reviews. Yeah, and you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net or in Facebook, just search for classicmoviereviews.net and in Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes, just search for Classic Movie Reviews and you can find us there. We're the one with the logo that's just pure black and white uh, and it has a film reel on it. And... Uh, yeah, we're excited to be reviewing this movie, and uh, I, I think I said I'm a little bit nervous because this is one of those movies that's so well-known and so well-reviewed, and there's probably been books or parts of books written about this film, so we're going to do our best to give it a go, and we'll probably miss some things, or we might even get a few things wrong, but uh, we're going to give it our best shot. Based on the notes that I have, we may be doing this for a while. I... I got so <laughs> I got so far into the movie, which I've seen maybe I don't know ten times. I made uh, a scene by scene list of over twenty awesome <laughs> of over twenty scenes. So uh, I'm not go- I'm going to condense that down into some cliff notes. Well, I think we wanted to do a two part episode. So if we go a little long, that's okay. We'll just turn it into two episodes. You should I'm I'm down for doing scene by scene. <laughs> should I give a little background on the film, just who made it and all that? Absolutely. All right. Well, needless to say, it was directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and an awful lot of people that uh, I read their reviews and write-ups think this was his best film. Uh, the production company was Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and it was released in July of 1959. I saw it in July of 1959 and loved it then, love it every time I watch it. Uh, so it, it did enormous business in the box office, and it still does enormous business today because in a lot of ways, even though it's now, what, 60 years old, it seems modern in almost all of its aspects, to me anyway. Yeah, I totally agree, totally. It hasn't aged like some of the films that we've reviewed. Well, I think part of it too is that it's it's a prototype, or maybe even we could call it the first, you know, action spy thriller. So many movies that came after it have been patterned after this this format. I know, like James Bond, and even the Jason Bourne films. I think are kind of similar to this. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah, this has some of the first uh, films where it's more physical than its in its presentation. 
Big breakthrough movie. Um, Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, my goodness. He made so many films. I put my favorite down, of which I have all of them. No, not all of it. Uh, <laughs> the, the 39 Steps from uh, 1935. Spellbound from 19, I believe, 45. And one that's not seen often and is not as well known is I Confess with Montgomery Clift from 1953, which was filmed in Canada. And it's a, it's a beautifully done movie. And then the one that will scare everyone who has not seen it yet, and even if they have, Psycho from 1960. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was, he was on top of his game. I'll, I'll turn it back to you before I go on for 20 minutes on Cary Grant. And even Reset and James Mason <laughs> before we even start. Well, at at two at two minutes and nine seconds into the film, we get our uh, cameo from our one of our <laughs> yes, favorite directors, yes. Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> I need to get on that bus. Yeah, he just <laughs> the bus driver's not going to open the door for him. Sorry, we're full. <laughs> so, get off. I know. So he does he make a cameo in every single one of his films? Do you know? I not everyone, I, right? I don't know the answer to that. I, he's made many of them, but I don't believe it was every one of them. I can't remember seeing him in a cameo in I Confess, but uh, one of our listeners... He certainly, a, he certainly does make a cameo in a lot of them. Oh, yeah, he does. He uh, really does. Yeah, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we did was talk about the cinematography and also the score. <clears throat> and then I think kind of the way that the film looks like just the the overall look of the film weren't, weren't you amazed at how the opening title sequence went it was oh i, I it was amazing. It's one of my favorite and it's by one of our favorite one-time directors saul, saul bass, bass yeah yep. phase four it i was reading here it's generally cited as the first feature ex- to, that uses the extended use of kinetic topography in the opening credits I'm not exactly sure what that technology is, but it sure works in this one. I I remember seeing this when I graduated from high school, and I was like blown away with that opening scene and the music. Oh my gosh, the music and the music tied in with those graphics oh, and the, the it ties in with kinetic everything. topography. There isn't yeah. a, there isn't a part of this film that doesn't have the music perfectly fit. To and the then it seamlessly it seamlessly uh, blends into the shot of the building. So it's like I know. It, it just drops you right into this world that we're going to be inhabiting for two hours. And our, our hero, with the initials of, of <laughs> Rot. Rot, yes. <laughs> said, but the o, the o doesn't stand for anything. He just... He, <laughs> I, I, I'm bouncing ahead, but she asks him on the train why he'd been divorced, and he says, well, I, people, my, my ex-wives thought I was too dull. <laughs> no, that's not on the train. That's that's on. That's when they're hanging on the the. I thought that was when they were hanging on the cliff uh, at the end. Oh, you're right. But if we ever get out of this alive, let's go back to New York on the train together. All right. Is that a proposition? It's a proposal, sweetie. What happened to the first two marriages? Oh, my wives divorced me. Why? Oh, I think they said I lived too dull a life. <laughs> well, um, we we see the scene opening up. Uh, he's leaving work with his executive assistant, and she's going in him, going with him in the cab, so that you can make notes about all the things he has to do the next day. 
one of my favorite scenes is when he tells her to order a box of candy for someone that he's upset, but have it wrapped in gold. She'll think it's more expensive and rich. Come on, you better walk me to the plaza. I didn't put a coat on. Plum sugar, child. Come on. Next. Oh yes. Send her a box of candy for Blount. Ten dollars. You know the kind. Each piece wrapped in gold paper. She'll like that. She'll think she's getting money. Just say to her, darling, I can't the days, the hours, the minutes. You sent that one last time. I did. Oh well. Put something for your sweet tooth, baby, and all your other sweet parts. I know, I know. Oh, can we take a cab into Garnell? What? For two blocks? You're late and tired. You know that's your trouble, Maggie. You don't eat properly. All right. Yeah. Taxi. And then they uh, get in the cab ahead of a of another uh, passenger. And she's all upset, and he says, no, no. First stop the plaza, don't show the flag. Poor man. Oh, come, come, come. I made him a happy man. I made him feel like a good Samaritan. You knew you were lying. Ah, Maggie, in the world of advertising, there's no such thing as a lie. There's only the expedient exaggeration. You ought to know that. I think that's that's a really important line, because this this whole sort of, like, first five minutes of the film is just sort of shots of him making his way from work to this this bar and it just kind of sets up his character i think as a little bit of a outsider kind of a little bit not really connected with people um totally because he's he he does a lot of his things through his secretary it seems like and he's also i think a bit cynical yeah definitely and also it, it it plants this little seed in your mind of like okay this he's he's good at lying like he's his job is is kind of built around telling these these lies, um, and I think that's important later because you sort of like slowly start to believe that the things that are happening to him and the way that he reacts to them is is real. Like that's actually how he would react to these things, right? Oh yeah, it's a perfect it's a perfect uh, job of carrying that out. So they arrive at the Plaza Hotel, the Oak Room, which. I've actually been in. I don't think that was the actual oak, oak room in the uh, movie, movie, but sure looked real. No, but it was a recreation, and it was so well done that people to this day think that it was the actual oak room that have been there and, and know it well. He did such a good job of it. And he meets all his uh, friends and potential clients. Uh, and I think he, I think his boss or his partner is worried that he's running a little late and the other people are getting nervous. And I forget who says it, but I think his partner says, well, don't worry, he may start slow, but he'll finish fast in the end with the, with the cocktails. I, I, I mean, this is, re- this is really a fairly accurate depiction of 1950s in terms of the cocktail hour. Well, and, and not only that, but the thing that I was amazed by, too, is... is uh, and I think this is something that Hitchcock is really good at doing is kind of depicting just an an everyday scene like the, that scene of them coming out of the office building at the beginning and all those people all those extras and and the the dynamism of the of the shots of people walking in front of them and behind them and and around them and then in the car as they're kind of driving to the oak room and they have there's a ton of usage of the rear projection where yeah. you know that like today, you know that they're just sitting in like a back seat, and it's and it's not a real car, right? And it's in that what you're seeing in the background is a film being projected on a big screen, but it's so well done that it's believable. Like it just adds to the overall effect. I would I would agree with that totally. Imagine what that would be like today if they made it 
with all of the uh, technology that's available for setting the scene and all. It would look totally real, but I don't think it would really make it a better movie. I, it doesn't detract at all from it. Not, not a bit, not a bit. He needs to call his mother, uh, a lovely lady played by Jesse Royce Landis, uh, because there's been some mix-up, and, and uh, he has to leave a message so that she knows that he's going to be, I think, later, going to be at meeting her later for, the, uh, for Broadway for a play. So, so I just we just got to stop here and talk about this this di- dynamic between him and his <laughs> yeah. mom for a second. <laughs> Which, by the way, yes, yeah. what the heck? <laughs> She's only eight years older than him in real life. Right away, you know, it's like yeah. Well, that's the first the first question that we have. <laughs> Although when I saw the movie as a as a younger man, I never picked up on that at all because I always think of. Cary Grant is eternally youthful and physically fit, but I... I'm yeah, al- he looks great in the film, that's for sure. I'm almost disappointed that I looked up the age difference. But, yeah, he, he's so worried about getting in touch with his mom, and you know he's got to be in middle age, right? Like, he's in his late 40s, early 50s yeah. in the film. And, you know, irregardless of the age of the actress, like, you know, he wants to get in touch with his mom to let her know that he's he's going to be late or he's, you know not where he said he was going to be. There's something that he needs to communicate. And the to interaction her. between the two of them, my goodness, <clears throat> all the time. Well, yeah, but I, I just wondered what the three guys were thinking, like the three guys <laughs> that he's with at the bar. Like, he's so concerned about this, and, and it, I don't think this is like a normal, quote-unquote normal behavior for, for somebody. I, I mean, even in the 1950s where you... He's just very close yeah, with his mom, Let's, I, I guess. Is, he is. <laughs> And he goes to uh, make a call, is it, or send a telegram? I can't remember which. He wants to. He wants to send a telegram, but he can't have the waiter do it. So he's got to go out to the lobby. And then, as he leaves the oak room, these two guys and there's a great. There's what's really cool about this movie too is that the more times you watch it, you start to pick up on these little things. So, like as he's sitting at the table. It's Cary Grant in the foreground on the left. It's the three guys that he's talking to in the middle ground. And then in the background, up in the very right corner, are the two guys that are going to yep. kidnap him. Just kind of waiting there and hanging yep. out. Lurking. Lurking. And, yeah, so it's it just, it just, you don't notice it at first, but then it sets that expectation, like, who are these two guys? Yeah, and then there's a great dramatic camera move to show them waiting for our hero well, and uh, I always wonder, you know, he just he leaves to send a telegram. He never comes back. What what were those people thinking that were in the oak room? Well, and the next the next thing that those three guys are going to see is that he's on the front yeah. page of the paper because he's murdered somebody at the UN. Who was who was going to be making a, a, an address to the General Assembly? He's just getting further and further. So it's kind of like. <laughs> I'm trying yeah. to. F- I always wondered what those three guys uh, thought about that because I don't know if he ever got back in touch with them. Uh, not, not in the film anyway. Maybe when they got back from their honeymoon. Yeah. So now we're at the scene where he's leaving the oak, the oak room, and these two guys grab him kind of out of nowhere, and and he and our our hero is quite taken aback, and those two those two characters are Valerian played by Adam Williams, and Licht, played by Robert Ellenstein. 
And I got to say, I love the name Valerian. That's a that's an awesome Doesn't character. Doesn't that sound evil? <laughs> you'll be seeing Doctor. Uh, you'll be seeing Doctor Valerian. You know, I wouldn't go. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm leaving. And, and, and his assistant <laughs> licked. <laughs> Well, and they put a gun in his back and usher him out to a car, and uh, he's very, very confused, uh, Roger Thornhill yeah. is. Hey, wait a minute, what's that supposed to be? Cars waiting outside, you will walk between us saying nothing. What are you talking about? Let's go. Let's go where? Who, who are you? Near Aaron Boyce, carrying concealed weapons. His is pointed at your heart. So please, no errors of judgment, I beg of you. Oh, come on, fellas. What is this, a joke or something? Yes, a joke. We were laughing in the car. Come. Oh, this is ridiculous. And uh, he... He plays it cool, though. He, I mean, the thing is, like... He's he's never really that ruffled in this movie. He's, he's very, very composed. Of, well, he gets, a, he gets a little composed. ruffled when he's running across that cornfield. Yeah. Well, that's but true. But who wouldn't? That's true. And then it was more than just a car. It was the latest... It was the latest version of the largest Cadillac sedan that they made that year. Oh, nice. That thing must have weighed 7,000 pounds. Oh, my like gosh. It's like a tank. <laughs> yes. Oh, and he tries to escape, but the door is locked, and he realizes that he's not getting out of there. And he's trying to chit-chat these two guys, and they're completely just yeah, ignoring he's, him. He's got quite a bit of patter. You can tell he's in advertising. So then they pull up to this uh, town Townsend, and I love that it's not only a gated house, but it's got a giant sign in front of it that says Townsend. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and it's like a half a mile up the driveway. Well, and this 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 uh, house is on like many, many acres. It looks like sort of an English manor house, you know? It looks like it could have been transplanted from so the uh, outside of London somewhere. A beautiful home. And they strong arm him, strong arm him into the house. And the woman, I think, the maid, directs him to that room, the library. Yes, but that's actually uh, uh, Lick's wife, we find out later. Yes, that's right. So this is sort of the criminal ring. We're, we're sort of being introduced to this ring of criminals, this gang of criminals. And they've we don't know this at this point in the movie, but they sort of like commandeered this guy's house. Like, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not even I'm their house. I'm trying to figure out how they were able to do that. I don't oh. know. And like... Apparently, the the gardener and his wife were supposed to be living there, taking care of the house. So, what happened to the gardener and his wife? We can only imagine. I don't. It was good. It wasn't good. Whatever it was. And then he's led into this drawing room, and then we meet, bum bum bum, James Mason's character. What an actor! What an actor! He did 125 films, maybe a little over that, from 1935 wow. to 1985. Everything from he played Erwin Rommel in the Desert Fox to the attorney that was opposite uh, Paul Newman in The Verdict, representing the Archdiocese mm. of Boston. What a what a wonderful actor! He's done a ton of movies, and he's he's. But I always remember him as Captain Nemo from Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then the professor from uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth. He and Pat Boone. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Bernard Herrmann did the music for that movie as well. I got, I kind of got on a Bernard Herrmann uh, kick, and I listened to like all of his scores. He did, he did a lot of films. 
for uh, Hitchcock, that's for sure. But anyway, I digress there because they also had to go out and get Leonard out of the uh, yard. He was playing croquet by himself. Right. <laughs> right, yeah. We we get like a really quick 2-second shot of Leonard out in the in the yard playing croquet apparently by himself. And Leonard is played by Martin Landau, who is another amazing actor. Oh, no kidding. Bless bless his acting and he he, he just left, I think, left us last year, two years I ago. I think he, I think this was his first really big role though um in film. And I read that he made a decision to play this character as being gay and it's very very subtle uh and everybody on hitchcock and everybody was totally cool with that they they like that idea and i i think it adds an extra sort of dimension of tension in the film because i i kind of get the feeling especially after watching it a couple times that leonard is really enamored with uh philip van damme like james mason's character like in you know, like it's more than just like he's a partner. Like I think he's he he likes them, likes him in a more romantic way in some respect. It sure adds to the depth of. And it. he's yeah. jealous, and I th- and I think he's jealous of Eve Kendall, and I think he's trying to kind of discredit her throughout the movie. I don't think he trusts her uh, at any point during the film. The way that's written and the way he played it really added a lot of depth to his character. He's so he's so smooth and just so like evil. Like he's the prototypical henchman, like evil henchman, I think. And and this is sort of like taken to extremes in the James Bond movies where we've got characters like Jaws, you know. Uh but I think this was a, a really well done version of that kind of character. I think that's part of the reason this is such a wonderful film. It sets up so many films that came along later. Just a note on Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> Maybe take that out. Martin Landau, I believe he uh, later on was very popular in the CBS television series Mission Impossible. Oh, was he yeah, in that? In the 60s, I believe. He well, not to mention he played a, a great captain in Space 1999. You remember that TV show? I don't. You don't remember Space 1999, where they where the moon gets tra- uh, blown out of the Earth's orbit, and then it travels through space, and they have all these adventures. It's kind of like Star Trek, but but a little bit different. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to send you some links to that. No, I don't. I don't remember. I, I, of course, this is the same guy here, me, that had Leonard Nimoy in the film. <laughs> you know, so I'm not to be trusted. Gosh almighty. So, well, anyway, uh, picking back up here. He's waiting in the room while they go gather up uh, some of the other players. And and, uh, he says, well, I'll just read a book while I'm here. There must have been 2,000 books on that wall. (laughs) Well, there's a a great dialogue. There's some really great dialogue between um, Roger Thornhill and Philip Van Damme here where Philip Van Damme thinks that Thornhill is actually this other person who's an age like a secret agent and Thornhill has absolutely no idea what's going on can you imagine if you just got kidnapped out of a, a bar with your friends and then you're ending up in this room with this guy saying that we know what you know and that you know is basically threatening his life and trying to 
pumping for information and, and you have no idea what's going be, on. It was be beyond just, bizarre. Man. Yeah. And and Thornhill's all upset because he had tickets to the theater that night and it's a show that he particularly yeah. was looking forward to seeing. And you know What is all this about? Why was I brought here? Games? Must we? Not that I mind a slight case of abduction now and then, but I have tickets for the theater this evening to a show I was looking forward to. And I get, well, kind of unreasonable about things like that. With such expert play acting, you make this very room a theater. Ah, Leonard, have you met our distinguished guest? He's a well-tailored one, isn't he? My secretary is a great admirer of your methods, Mr. Kaplan. Elusiveness, however misguided... Wait a minute. Wait, wait. Did you call me Kaplan? I know you're a man of many names, but I'm perfectly willing to accept your current choice. Current choice? My name is Thornhill. Roger Thornhill. There's never been anything else. Of course. Right, right. He, he doesn't fully grasp the situation at all. And and I love the line by uh, Philip Van Damme where he kind of compliments on, on his acting skills, that he's really playing <laughs> it up, you know? And then... And then uh... And then uh, Martin Landau's character says, yes, and all of your IDs are so well done these days. Yeah, because he wants to show them. Do you want to see, see my ID? Yeah. <laughs> they, I'm looking at Martin it. Landau. I was right on Mission Impossible. He was in that. But Space 1999, I, I'll look it up. I, I feel like I'm missing the boat on that one. I'm sure you've seen it because I remember as a kid watching it on TV, and I'm pretty sure you would have oh, been aware had, of, had of to it. Been, yeah. Um, oh well, yeah. But uh, so uh, Thornhill's not giving them the information that they want. I mean, obviously because <laughs> yes. he doesn't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> I would help you, but I have no idea what you're talking about. So he tries to uh, he tries to leave, but he's blocked by uh, Valerian there at the door, and then they basically hold him down and pour a bottle of bourbon down his throat, yes. I think. How about... A, Get him totally drunk. How about a libation? And the whole bottle, yes. Uh, and next we see them, he's in the Mercedes, the convertible. Drunker than you can imagine. Yeah, this is one of my favorite, this is one of my favorite shots um, because of the cinematography in this this scene. Um, they're, sta- they're, they're on that cliff, and in the background you can see the ocean... And then there are two cars with the lights yeah. kind of on yeah. the road. And it just looks so, like, claustrophobic, kind of, like, and, and, and penned in. And one of the things I noticed, too, is that the film does a really good job of, like, making you feel like there's no escape. Like, you're, you're sort of, like, boxed in. Like, especially on the train, which I can't oh, wait to talk it, about the train. Because the, the whole train thing is my favorite part of the, the movie. It even repeats itself in later, in all the scenes, like... He's claustrophobically trapped in that cornfield. Yep, uh, yep. And and the way that it's written and the way that it's shot just does an awesome job of making you feel it like viscerally that that there's no way. Like, how is he going to escape? And I mean, how is he going to escape this where he's totally drunk? He's at the edge of this cliff, and they're going to push the car over the edge of the cliff. Like, how how is he going to get out of that? But yes, yet he does through through. through. <laughs> Quick wit, and again, that's replicated in movies ever since then to now. Yeah, I think what happened is they underestimated how much he actually drinks. So the bottle, <laughs> yeah. the 
bottle of bourbon didn't do exactly what they had thought because it's like, oh, it's just another another uh, cocktail hour <laughs> at the Oak Room. Yeah. And, all, and then he, he off he goes <laughs> right. in this Mercedes, which, by the way, was a beautiful car. Wow. Oh my <clears> gosh, <throat> that car was amazing. Yeah. yeah, and then there's okay. So the other thing I want to talk about is the comedy in this yes. movie. I was actually laughing during a lot of this movie. Like it's just it's just. A perfect combination of, of screwball kind of like <laughs> slapstick almost comedy and subtle sort of humor and then action adventure like thrills. It's just so. Oh, well and there's two way. or three of those when he he goes down the road and they finally he finally gets stopped and they take him to the. Yeah, he, he's almost hit like a, car, a couple cars and then a bike a bicyclist goes across the road and that and he finally like stops and then. Uh, a pl- the police car are chasing him and the police runs into him and then another car runs into the police car and I just started <laughs> laughing so hard at that point because it's just it's just funny that that's all happening nobody and got nobody hurt. got hurt <laughs> and, and the cars weren't even badly damaged and then Not fast forward to the uh, police station which ha- I think it had a jail or a uh, courtroom attached and our sergeant Klinger Klinger yeah Klinger uh, uh, our our hero asks Klinger if he can make a call, or he's told he can make a call. And, and Grant, in his half drunk state, said, "Well, what's what's your name?" Well, I'm Sergeant Emil Klinger. And he goes, "Emil." <laughs> like, what? He was surprised at the poetry of that name. <laughs> right. Well, there's another funny line there where he says, "Well, how much did you drink?" And he's like, "I didn't drink anything. They poured it down my. They poured a bottle down my throat." It's like I didn't drink. I didn't. And drink then it. the doctor, I the was doctor shows to. up to take a blood test, and again, Cary Grant says, "You, you might want to get back a little further." Because he probably smelled right. I mean, were, <laughs> when it, yeah, because he says, "Can you open your mouth and stick out your tongue?" And he says, "You might want to step." I back. mean, there were this, th- that whole series of scenes is. I mean, it's it, it's in a sense, it's very a very bad thing because he just barely survived. But then this light humor comes in with Emil, and then he talks to his mother. Well, and the call oh, to yeah. his mom, where the call to his mom, and he's saying, <clears throat> "Oh, mother, mother, this is your son, Roger Thornhill." Yeah. Wait a minute, I'll find out. Where am I? Glen Cove Police Station. Glen Cove Police Station. No, no, mother, I have not been drinking. No, no, these two men, they poured a whole bottle of bourbon into me. No, they didn't give me a chaser. And then you don't know what the mom says, but the, but then he says, no, they didn't give me a chaser. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So, oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is like this is like you shouldn't be laughing at. I mean, this this is like bad stuff happening to him, and he still has no idea what's going on at all. And then uh, again, moving ahead, his attorney shows up, and that's yeah, that's Edward Platt, Victor Larrabee, very serious, very very formal and all. And here's Grant just. He's not sure what's going on. Well, and and then the 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 story that the attorney's telling them of what happened, it's like, (laughs) and then then the mom like is rolling her eyes so hard in the background and making noises like, oh, geez, really, really, no. (laughs) So then we flash to where 
uh, a detective or two. I think it's yeah. They're they're gonna they're assigned to like try to figure this out. The five yeah. of them go back to the uh, to the ma- the Townsend Mansion, and <laughs> what an actress that woman was that met them at the door. Oh, Roger, you're so. We were all worried. <laughs> and there's no evidence that his story is true. No. Like the cabinet where all the liquor was is now full of books, and the, the couch where they spilled all the the liquor on is is all cleaned up, and there's no there's no stains. And this woman is acting like they're old friends. And one of the, I mean, so one of the one of the one of the things that was a little bit unbelievable. I mean, the whole thing is kind of crazy, but the fact that. The mom doesn't know that he's like good friends with these people that have like this huge house and like that he was supposed to, that he was at this party. Like the mom is so incredulous that that he's telling the truth, right? Like yeah. I just I just wondered wouldn't there be a little bit of doubt like weren't you supposed to be at the show last night with me and where were you and why were you out here and so I I it kind of puts a little bit of doubt in my mind about how reliable he is as a person <laughs> is this is this the kind of thing that happens often where he makes plans and then just sort of doesn't show up and so nobody really believes him that that this happened because it's kind of like well this is just kind of how you are roger you know yeah earlier we were saying he's very close to his mother but now i'm thinking well maybe he's close to his mother but he may not be truthful with his mother right well, and he does later say that he's not very truthful with women. Yes, yes, he on does. the train. He's remember? on the train. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think. See, I think that you could look at that and you could say, well, that's kind of a plot hole in a way. But then I think it's actually talking to his character, and it's really kind of shedding a light on his character being not very reliable, not very consistent, and it it actually helps with the character arc and kind of where he goes from the beginning of the film to the end of the film when you think that now he's like this totally different person almost. I don't know if we we would call him a madcap playboy or not, but he certainly had a good time. He'd been married many times. He's not always truthful. He, he He's keeping several bartenders uh, yeah. alive with his... Because <laughs> there's that... There's that <laughs> and ex-wives, yeah, because there's that line on when they're going out to the plane later in the movie where he's like, I, I'm not looking to get killed here. I've got people that are depending on me. <laughs> I, I, was, I was thinking about this. As they developed script and they developed the character of Thornhill, Hitchcock and the writers must have realized this can only be played by one guy. You can't have that played by Jimmy Stewart or anybody. I mean, it's, just, it's, a, it's a perfect fit. For Cary Grant. Well, I almost wonder if it, if it wasn't just written, written specifically for him. for him. Because he is such a great comedic actor, and he grew up doing comedy. Like, he, he that was his first thing. Like, he was on Broadway doing a co- comedy show for years. And so I wonder, I totally agree. Like, I can't imagine anybody else playing this role besides Cary Grant. Yeah, I've tried to think of someone that from the 40s or 50s, and it's just... It just doesn't come to me. But anyway, uh, there's a great line at the mansion when his mother says, oh, Roger, just pay the $2. (laughs) Well, first of all, it's only $2? 
I mean, yeah, wow. what the hell? I was so like, it's you only have to pay two dollars, even if you adjust it for inflation. My gosh, he was well, drunk driving. He caused he caused an accident. He almost killed several people. It, it, says and it was how, only two dollars. In a way, though, it says how far we've come in that sixty-year time frame. That it was sort of funny and viewed that way as they put the film together on the drunk driving. Right. I can't right. believe that somebody would film that those scenes today in that same manner. I just no, I don't think I don't think you could because it, it would just come off up. as totally insensitive and and yeah and weird. But <laughs> pay the two dollars. So they so so. So the so his story completely falls apart, and the the detectives are pretty much done. They're not even they're not going to follow up on any of other the other leads. Uh, but he the one good thing that came out of it is that Thornhill now knows that that the real the real Townsend is a UN and you know he works at the UN right. So not, not only that, he's addressing the General Assembly that afternoon. Right, so so now so now Thornhill has a little bit of a lead of where he might be able to go next because he thinks that Townsend is actually the James character Mason. played by James Mason, and we don't know yet that that's a different different character. As the as the troop, the two police officers and Mom and Carrie and the attorney leave the mansion, then the camera pans over to this guy who looks up, and it is Valerian. Valerian, yeah. He's keeping an eye on this this troop. So then I guess we get back to the Plaza Hotel. Yeah, and we we uh because we think that this other secret agent guy who is um George Kaplan. Kaplan, Kaplan. Yeah. So they go to the hotel where they think Kaplan's at and he he bribes his mom. He has to give his mom like a twenty dollar bill to go get the, the key. <laughs> To try to get the key from the front desk. <laughs> it's because she. It's because she looks more honest. I don't. Yeah, I, don't know I, exactly I can't. I can't even count the number of times that she rolls his eyes at him during this movie. But it's got to be a hundred. <laughs> uh, so they make their way up. And now to we're the room. at the hotel, and they they kind of find out that uh, Kaplan is a shorter, smaller person than than. Thornhill, and that he's got dandruff. He's got dan- dandruff. Yeah, dandruff. Dandruff. Yeah. yeah. And as they're when they're in the room here, they get a a, a call from. Yeah. <laughs> was it was it Valerian or somebody well, calls it, it's, him? And, it's Valerian and the other guy, Licked. Licked. Yeah. They're calling and, from the lobby. And Thornhill's like, "But I'm not Kaplan." He's like, "Okay, you're <laughs> in his you room. In room. You answered his phone." <laughs> <laughs> like he's digging himself a deeper hole. Today. I can understand <laughs> where they might think he was really Kaplan. Yeah, well, he's kind of playing the part, and we're figuring out that maybe this uh, Kaplan guy is is a real guy, but we don't know. But it's definitely not our our main character. And they it, Thornhill figures out that uh, Valerian and uh, Licht are coming up, and they need to get out of there. So they leave and they go to the elevator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. They get on the elevator. Oh, we we missed a little bit of interaction between him and the the maid. Uh, the the but that was that that was awkward. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and the the bell the bellboy. <laughs> but nobody's ever seen him. But you know it it's uh, important to know that those people would think that really was George Kaplan because 
He's in the room. He has a key. I mean, like, yeah, he he's completely playing this part. Um, so there's a great scene. I love the scene on the elevator too because uh, he he's. Valerian and Lick get on <laughs> yes. the elevator with him and his mom, and he's like looking over at these guys, like, "Hey, mom, these are the guys. <laughs> these are the guys." <laughs> and what does mom do, by the way? <laughs> she she rolls her eyes, and then she says, "Are you two really trying to kill my son?" <laughs> <laughs> and they crack up, and, and the uh, elevator's like, and then the whole the whole like, elevator what cracks is going up. Going on here, but once again, Roger Thornhill comes to the rescue by. Opening when the d- door opens, ushering all the women out first, and then he he runs into a cab. But this is another example. Like I, I keep coming back to this where there's this amazing cinematography of of people, sort of coming towards the camera and in in front of him and beside him and behind him, and it just gives this great sense of depth and 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 dynamism. And and there's sort of a rhythm if having watched this a few times now between these dynamic shots with like the camera moving or, or zooming in or panning and then just like the camera's locked down and, and things are moving oh, behind it's him. Perfect. So it's, it, it's not like the camera's constantly moving. Like it's uh, one of those movies where you're going to get seasick just from watching it, but there's enough variety between the different types of usage of that camera that just gives it a, a great sort of like rhythm. And I think that's all totally intentional and and it's so much more uh important too nowadays because the the equipment they had then technologically didn't allow for a lot of the stuff that's done today so that for him to put this together and make it seem so seamless i think is great plus i was impressed by the light-footedness of uh roger thornhill he's in and out of cabs and i mean he, he really moves I think he was he was destined to be a secret agent. Like he's got it down. He really he's does. never been trained, he really but he's does. he's got it down. <laughs> and he and he looks the part. Oh, the, well we haven't even talked about the suit yet. Jeez. No, I I um, I'm I'm wait I'm waiting on that because that alone involves quite a history. Yeah, so so he he's being chased by Licht and Valerian, but he loses them and now we're at the UN and there's a great shot of the outside of the UN as he's going in. And then there's this amazing map painting yes. of the interior of the, the UN. And they couldn't get permission from the UN to film inside. So they just stealthfully took some photos <laughs> of what it was like. And then they painted it. And it's just an amazing shot. And, and I actually love the way those paintings look. And there's some more of those later at Mount Rushmore. Yes. Of the, of the house and, and other, lo- Yeah. And and of of the 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 monuments and yeah. stuff and like I think at the time this came out I think it it's kind of indistinguishable I don't know that you would know that it's a matte painting but kind of looking back at it now you can kind of tell yeah when I saw when I saw it when it came out that summer I really did, that didn't even come into my mind it was, there was so much action and the music was always making the the action move ahead and flow so the cinematographer was an expert at this uh, usage of forced perspective. And he was one of the, he was one of uh, Hitchcock's not only favorite cinematographers, but actually also a close friend of, uh, of Hitchcock named Robert Burks. Burks, And he did a bunch of Hitchcock films and it does kind of have a Hitchcockian feel to it. You know, like uh, rear, he did rear window uh, vertigo, 
to, to catch, to a, catch thief, a thief. Several those four yeah. are those four or have that same look to them. I think. Yeah, especially Vertigo. And the, I haven't seen all, I haven't seen To Catch a Thief, but uh, from what I've read and seen, it it does kind of have that look. But anyway, I, I didn't want to go without mentioning Robert Burks because he did an amazing job on this movie. So again, Roger then finds the reception area for the United Nations General Assembly area. Yeah, so first of all, <clears throat> can anybody just walk in and like <laughs> hang out with these people? There was no security. He didn't have to present any IDs or anything. He's just going to go in and, and hang out with these UN <laughs> ambassadors. It might be a little different today. Yeah, I would think so. But, but, but then Valerian is there too. And Valerian, there's this shot of him putting on these gloves and... Some, you know, something bad's going to happen. Well, there's so many things. That I don't even know if they could have done it back in 1959, but here's Valerian with a knife. He's come into the U.N., and here's Roger going right up to the receptionist. And then here's the main speaker for the General Assembly coming over. Yes, you wanted to see me? I mean, wow. Yeah. I don't know, yeah, I don't know if they would have done it that way in those days either. I, don't, I just don't know. I don't know, but it, it sure sets up a great... <laughs> scene here where Thornhill's talking to town, the real Townsend and trying to figure out what's going on and he's like well what can I do for you? Mr. Marty, delegation Are you the Townsend of losing Lane Cove? That's right. Are we neighbors? A large red brick house with a curved tree-lined driveway. That's the one. Were you at home last night Mr. Townsend? You mean in Glen Cove? Yes. No, I've been staying in my apartment here in town for the last month. I always do when we're in session here. Oh, what about Mrs. Townsend? My wife has been dead for many years. Oh, now, Mr. Kaplan, what's this Mr. all about? Oh, forgive me, but who are those people living in your house? What people? The house is completely closed up. Just the gardener and his wife living in the grounds. Now, Mr. Kaplan, suppose you tell me who you are and what you want. Well, uh, please, just a moment. Look, do you know this man... And then just as about, as we're about to like maybe learn something here, uh, Valerian throws a knife into the back of Townsend, and just right on cue, yeah. <laughs> Thornhill grabs the knife and pulls it out and gets his picture taken with the knife in his hand. And it's, it's <laughs> handy that the newspaper uh, photographer or the photographer was right there to be able to take that fil- uh, picture. Yeah, and it doesn't look yeah. at all uh, like bad or, or or like he's guilty. He's standing. Well, he says, "Well, I didn't do this." Well, how? I mean, <laughs> it sure looks like you did it. <laughs> oh my goodness! So we ha- we have this terrible photograph of him looking guilty. I mean, only because he's standing over the body with a knife. I I don't know why anybody would conclude that he was guilty. But uh, then we flash over to the. Uh, meeting room of the CIA or the NSA or whatever that group is and lo and behold they're talking about this whole situation and their leader is Leo G. Carroll or the professor 
The professor. Yeah, I love that he's called the professor. And how many times has that character been used since then? Oh my gosh, this is this is like such a trope now. It's just such a trope in spy movies where you've got sort of like M, you know, like in the in the in the um in the James Bond movies or the or the lead person in the uh, Jason Bourne movies or on and on and on. Yeah. And they're sitting around talking about, well, you know, this is this has turned out well for us cuz now Van Damme thinks there really is a Kaplan. Roger Thornhill, Manhattan advertising executive, indicating that the name of George Kaplan, which he gave to an attendant at the General Assembly building, is false. Possible motive for the slaying, suggested by the discovery that earlier today, Thornhill had appeared to Glen Cove, Long Island Police Court, charged with drunk driving with a stolen car. In his defense, he charged that the murder victim, Mr. Townsend, had tried to kill him the night before. Brother. What about that? Does anyone know this Thornhill? No, not me. Never heard of it. Professor? Apparently, the poor sucker got mistaken for George Kaplan. How can he get mistaken for George Kaplan when George Kaplan doesn't even exist? Don't ask me how it happened. Obviously, it happened. Van Damme's men must have grabbed him, tried to put him away, using Lester Townsend's house. And the unsuspecting Mr. Townsend winds up with a stray knife in his back. Say, Laguerre. So horribly sad, how is it I feel like laughing? What are we going to do? Do? About Mr. Thornhill. We, uh, we do nothing. Nothing? That's right, nothing. Oh, we could congratulate ourselves on a marvelous stroke of good fortune. Our non-existent decoy, George Kaplan, created a divert suspicion from our actual agent has fortuitously become a live decoy. So, so I think this was like a super important point in the movie to have that scene come up. Yes. Um, because I think at this point, as an audience, we would start to get tired of like these things happening to this character without any kind of explanation or any kind of grounding yes. as to what is going on. Yes. And bringing it back to like this is a federal sort of investigation that's going on by some secretive spy agency suddenly like makes this movie 10 times more interesting yes and it's also been used dozens of times since then yeah but i think this is the first time that it shows up oh i I think it is and and it's also interesting that it's just a conference room with people talking. There aren't computers and people running around and tracking him down. It's it's very different in that regard, but it's been used over and over again. Well, and they're and they're getting their news from the newspapers and and <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, like and and then they start to I think they start to keep closer tabs on him after that. But oh, definitely uh, now, definitely. But but they've kind of written him off. Like they think that there's no way he's going to survive, and this is perfect because it wraps up nicely their little plot of trying to protect their real agent, who we don't know who that is yet. And I was trying to figure out who it was, and I was thinking that it was um, Leonard. So did I at that at that point I, in the movie. The first time I saw, I thought Leonard's the guy. I totally thought it was uh-huh. Leonard, and and I I don't know why. I think that that was on purpose. I think we were supposed to think that it was him. Now, in um, in the conference room meeting at the CIA or NSA or whatever headquarters that is, there was one sympathetic person there saying, "Well." What are we going to do about Roger Thornhill? And the professor basically saying, you know, we 
nothing. We're not going to do anything. Yep, and they all sort of shrug their shoulders and say, well, yep. Okay. And then we cut to the scene at the uh, train station in New York City, Grand Central Station. And I love, again, it's another great crowd scene. Like, the number of extras that they had in this movie is just incredible. Oh, no. And, and again, it's a great scene of just this chaos of people kind of moving through the frame. And then we pick up uh, Thornhill on, on the phone. <laughs> I love that ticket agent. I don't know who that was, yeah. but he's been in five million movies. <laughs> and and I, does, does uh, Roger have sunglasses yet or not? Yeah, and, and the ticket agent says, what's wrong with your eyes? And he says, are, are they sensitive to light? And he says, no, I'm sensitive to questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the ticket agent looks back on the wall, and there's a picture of the knifing. Yeah, and, 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 and there's police everywhere, and they, we see a picture of the front page of the paper, and it's like, UN killer, and it's got his photograph on it, and... So the heat is really on here, and he manages to kind of get onto the train platform. Again, the security around everything is just, there is none. It's totally non-existent. Well, uh, did you, you said earlier you were watching the film. Yeah, I've got it right now. It's, I'm exactly in the... If you look, if you look at that, uh, that uh, Grand Central Station scene, there are a couple of police officers in uniform, uh-huh. and they're just sort of, they're not really doing much. No, they're just kind of watching the crowd. But but the thing I was after is that one of those went on to have a pretty good career as a uh, character actor. I can't, I don't have this movie on, but but one of them, uh, my memory is that they they had a pretty good career. Well, and there's no there's no police at the gate to where the train platform is. Wouldn't wouldn't that be where you'd want to stand? <laughs> <laughs> Not if you're making this movie. So then he's on the train and he's kind of he runs it. This is where we meet uh, Eve Kendall, played by Eva Marie Saint, and uh, she she kind of unexpectedly covers for him, and we're not quite sure if she recognizes him or not. Uh, he tells a story about having seven parking tickets, and that's why the police are on the train <laughs> looking for him. <laughs> I think she's clued into who this is, though, because. Oh, she knows yeah. right away. Oh, yeah. Like, we find out later that she was there on purpose. And we also find out later that uh, Philip Van Damme and uh, Leonard are on the train. Yes, they're they're lurking in one of the uh, Pullman cars. But I think that the what's interesting about this scene, so this starts to pick up where I think some of my favorite scenes are, but... Um, there's like this instant chemistry between the two of them, between Roger and Eve... And he's. This is where his suave coolness really comes into play. Like he's so debonair, you know, and and cool. And I love those sunglasses. Yeah, the sunglasses. He's even wearing them on the on the train. Like on the train. Like if I wear these, no one will know that I'm the uh, expe- uh, suspected murderer, the killer. Yeah. Yeah, and he's playing hide and seek on the train with the the ticket agents. <laughs> he's hiding would... in the bathroom. I would propose that this be a good place for us to stop because the dinner scenes alone between them is going to take some time and we'll run out of time. Yeah, I think we should stop right here as well. So this would be a good place to end uh, part one. Part one. Uh, We're 46 minutes into the film (laughs) and there's still an hour and 30 minutes. So we'll have to pick it up a little bit maybe next time. We'll have to pick it up. uh, All right. So that's the end of part one of our review of uh, North by Northwest. We're having a great time. I hope you can tell. 
Uh, we're going to pick this back up in a, another recording in the next few days uh, to finish it out with a part two. Uh, it kind of reminds us of how we used to do our reviews, uh, where we'd go scene by scene, and, and it's a lot of fun to do that. So, again, coming to you from what's turned out to be sunny, beautiful, blue-skied North Bend, it's Matt Johnson. And Bob Johnson in Los Angeles wishing everybody happy movie watching. <laughs>